So, we'll let people drag on in. I've been requested to start and end on time. So, welcome to the Atheists and Agnostics Ask It Basket Workshop. My name is Mike. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Uh, hi. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, before we get started, we ask that all cell phones and other electronic devices be turned off. To protect our anonymity, no photography or visual recording are allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. An Ask It Basket is being circulated for the question and answer portion of this meeting. Uh, it's right there. It's going to go around. This meeting is being taped. If you enjoy this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tape table to order copies of this workshop or any other meeting. They are available on CD or as an electronic download. <clears throat> the format for this meeting is as follows. Two speakers will share for 25 minutes each, followed by 25 minutes of questions and answers. The topic for this session is atheists and agnostics. Um, our first speaker is going to be Robert, and our second speaker is going to be Lewis. So without further ado. Thank you, Mike. Hello, everyone. I'm Robert, a compulsive overeater. Hi, Robert. First of all, to qualify, this is something Bill, Bill W. talks about because apparently it works best when drunks hear from other drunks and OAers hear from other OAers. Um, I've been in OA um, 25 and a half years. Um, it's the culmination of a long struggle with, with weight and the issues that uh, trigger it. And uh, I've lost over 100 pounds. Twice. So that's going to be my story. Those of you who know me well realize that usually when I sign in the We Care list, I put down, don't quit before the miracle. I'll be explaining why I do that uh, during the presentation today. I was born in a little Indian town in what at one time was Oklahoma Territory. When my father was born there, it actually was Oklahoma Territory. Um, Herbert Hoover was the president, so I go back a long, long way. The town was called Eufaula. We've only had one famous person in history come from Eufaula. They made a movie about her. It was called Queen of the Outlaws, and her name was Belle Starr. So if that name doesn't mean anything to you, probably nobody from, from Eufaula is going to be worth remembering. My father uh, went through the fifth grade and then went to work on a farm. My mother uh, went into the 11th grade before she quit. Um, she married my dad in 1929, and uh, two years later, I was born. The um, uh, first of three children, my mother, dad, and uh, uh, brother and sister are all dead. So, obviously, um, we had a, a, a problem. My father had a nickname. He was Fats, F-A-T-S. Um, and when he was dying, I talked to his physician, who explained to me that if he had been um, of normal weight, they could have operated on his heart. But because he was so fat, they just couldn't do it. And so I lost him. My mother and brother died of brain tumors, so that's always been an area of interest to me in particular. And uh, my sister also died of this disease, and I'll sort of come back to that. When I was about four, my father uh, sold his cotton crop for $5, the whole crop, because it was the midst of the Depression. We moved to Fort Worth, which I consider my hometown because I lived there longer than anywhere else. When my brother was diagnosed with a brain tumor, uh, they operated, and when they finished, his head looked like a football. So just imagine shape from a cone shape back coming forward, and uh, 
during the time that he was ill, uh, the family was pretty well disturbed. But the first really traumatic experience of my life occurred when I came home from fifth grade and was told that uh, uh, my brother had died and we were sent next door to sit with neighbors to uh, keep us busy while my mother and dad talked to the mortician and the physician. In those days, there was no such thing as television, and so the uh, lady who was taking care of us turned on the radio, and we were listening to The Lone Ranger. And my mother came in, looked at my sister and me, and said, You two are having a lot of fun while your brother's in there dying. And, or died. And uh, the result was that I decided never to cry in public. Uh, and so even at the funeral, I didn't cry. Um, my sister, the trauma was such that uh, not only did she go through compulsive overeating and things like that, but uh, she then refused for the rest of her life to go to a uh, cemetery, or at least get out of the cemetery. Uh, I know, looking back on it as an adult, that my mother simply had been feeling a great deal of grief. But as a child, listening to it, it was anything but laying guilt on us. The next year, in the sixth grade, I went out for the flag football team. And first play of the first game, the coach on the other side said, I want that kid weighed. So they took me off the field. They weighed me. I weighed more than the maximum allowed for playing flag football. The year before, when my brother was still alive, there had been no problem with weight. So weight became an issue for me uh, really the rest of my life. Still is today. Although I am in a program now that, that deals with it more effectively. Uh, I went on to, to um, high school. And as a matter of fact, the high school football team that I played on uh, had a reunion last fall, 60 years after we had played together. The only player that anybody might recognize by name, um, see, what was his name? He was the coach of the 49ers. Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh. Thank you. Of course, Bill has heard me before, so he's heard this story. <laughs> but I couldn't think of it. That, that sometimes happens at my age. Things start to slide a bit. Uh, the interesting thing is the coach was able to join the reunion. He was 96 at the time, and it was fascinating to see what they looked like and, and how they had, had uh, prospered over life. I went on to uh, um, college. Um, I was a serious student because I wanted to become a teacher. And my um, first teaching experience was at San Jose State, teaching an American history class of people who were coming back from World War II a long time ago. And one lady who was in there was 45 years old. She had been teaching in Mississippi for 20 years, but didn't have a California credential, so she had to come in and take American history. I figured she knew more about it than I did. So that's what the kinds of things that were happening to me growing up, uh, running into problems with weight and so on. I mentioned the football team I, I tried out for earlier in high school. There was a, a, a fat issue there, too. The coach told me over the course of the summer to gain weight because I was the starting tackle at 175 pounds. So for the only time in my life, I gained weight because I was told to. And the result was I weighed well over 200 when the team got together. And uh, I learned this story that I'm going to share with you now uh, this last fall. We had a, a summer training camp up in the Sierras. And the coach dropped us off at Emerald Lake, and we were to walk four miles into the camp. The walk into the camp went way up hills and downhills. And here I'm carrying an extra 30 pounds or so. And after the rest of the guys arrive at the uh, campsite, someone says, where's House? And House is not there. So they come looking for me. And they see me coming up the hillside on my hands and knees. That's when they decided I had a lot of determination. <laughs> and uh, that, that, was, that was, again, a problem with weight. 
After college, I, uh, I bought my first book on weight loss at Safeway. I'll tell you how long ago that was. It was 75 cents. I've never been able to find that book since I misplaced it, but it was, it was helpful. And so my first official diet was a calorie diet. And I, lost, I always lost weight on diets. I just never lost enough, and I could never quit gaining it back. So I wound up uh, um, losing weight for a little bit, and then I thought, you know, I'm going to look around to see what's available. Well, what was available was a chocolate milkshake called Metrical. Now, most of you are too young to remember that, but I remember it. You have one Metrical can at breakfast, one Metrical can for lunch, uh, then you had a regular dinner, and you had a Metrical. Another one, I think you had three or four a day. I would drink them all in one day. didn't work. I mean, it worked for a while, two or three days, but I kept drinking Metrical, and, and it didn't work. Well, my next diet, because I, I kept trying, it, it was important to me to, to lose weight. Uh, my next diet was Dr. Atkins. He was actually back then as well. And this was great because it was whipped cream and pecans. Um, no meat, no vegetables, but whipped cream and I, mean, I, I loved that. Trouble was I kept gaining weight on it, so that didn't work too well either. Um, I'll skip some of the other individual plants I tried, but you know the drinking man's diet I didn't drink, so that didn't really help me a lot. But I tried all sorts of diets. And then I decided I can't do it on my own. The obvious solution is to pay somebody to help me. So I went to hypnosis, and that was, in those days it was $100, and I would go in to uh, uh, be treated, and the uh, hypnotist would put me on a nice soft chair, cover me up with a very heavy, very heavy blanket, and uh, put, put uh, um, earphones on my head, and I would listen to a tape. And this tape would tell me about all the good things about losing weight and not overeating and so on. Uh, and the result was that uh, when he asked how things were going, I said, I think I'm falling asleep. He said, no, 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 you're under deep hypnosis. So I was in that for a while and a wonderful experience. But uh, like all the other diets I tried, didn't work for a long time. But this time I'm becoming more sophisticated. And so I try a new plan. This one was only $500 in those days. I know it's over 1000 now if it still exists. It was called Chick Aversion Therapy. And in this one, I would come in with some item of food that I liked to eat, that I wanted to get rid of. And um, they would have me put my hand inside a device that gave me electric shocks. So uh, I could give you several examples, but I'll give you one example. Uh, the the uh, technician asked me what I, I uh, liked about popcorn. I made the mistake of saying I like popcorn. I said, I like the salt taste. So she said, stick out your tongue. I stuck my tongue out. She took a, a, a carton of Morton salt and poured it on my tongue. And it stayed there for the next half hour treatment while I was getting shocks. The result was I had pitted tongue. You've heard of mad cow disease? Well, pitted tongue was, was different, but that was, that was what I got. Well, but this time I'm getting up in age and it's about time to do something more exciting. And I've heard about Stomach stapling. Now that ought to, if that doesn't do it, nothing will. Actually, I've known two people in OA who've had their stomachs stapled and had to have them taken out again. But while I'm waiting, uh, I'm going to put you in the, the situation now. It's, it's Thanksgiving Day. I am over 50 years old. And I'm how shall I put it, stuffed. I had eaten everything under the sun, as I always did on any holiday. I would always start the next day uh, to be on a diet, but the pig-out day I would have. And I was listening to a radio broadcast with a man named uh, Reuben, Theodore Reuben, psychiatrist. And this lady called in and she said, um, I'm gaining weight, I can't stop, and I'm over 100 pounds overweight. Well, that got my attention because I was over 100 pounds overweight. That's, that's how you could be, get your stomach stapled. You had to be that much overweight. 
at my heaviest, I weighed over 300 pounds. Um, he said, go to Overeaters Anonymous. I'd never heard of Overeaters Anonymous. But um, it wasn't hard to find. And I went to my first meeting on the following Sunday, 1984. And I sat down and they, they read our invitation to you. And at the end of the invitation it said, Welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome home. And I thought, man, this is exactly where I need to be. Uh, so I turned to the man sitting next to me and I said, this was after the meeting. I said, what do I do now? And he said, if you're serious about this, and I was serious, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Being compulsive, I went to 92 meetings in 90 days. <laughs> uh, and it worked. I mean, the weight just poured off of me. Now, I want to go back for just one brief moment, back to my high school days, because something occurred there that relates to our topic today. My parents never went to church. And I felt something was missing from my life. So when I was a junior in high school, um, my best friend and I went to a, a church in, in beautiful downtown Hayward, right across the bay. And uh, the result was that uh, we became members of the church. And I continued, I went from Southern Baptist to American Baptist, to Methodist, to Presbyterian, to Unitarian, to Quaker. All over, all over a period of about, uh, uh, oh, 25 years. And I've been a Quaker now for 40 years. So whatever that period is, that, 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 was, the, that was the basis of it. Um, and I felt a lot better about myself as a result. Well, I need to tell you what happened to you to me when uh, I started going to OA. I told you that I had this honeymoon abstinence. Weight just flowed off. Right now, I, for the last year, I've had a, a caloric uh, intake per day of 1,500 calories or less. This last month, I have lost one half of one pound. In those days, when I was younger and more active, I could lose... 25 pounds a month. So, obviously, the weight could come off. And I had this honeymoon abstinence that was flowing off. And then I ran into my first major problem with Overeaters Anonymous. I went to a retreat at uh, Los Gatos. There were, oh, half a dozen of us from, from our local area who went to the meeting. And uh, I was really enjoying it. Sunday morning, I'm out walking. And I see a friend from, from one of the meetings that I attended coming in the opposite direction. I thought, boy, you know, there's a, there's a bench sitting up there on this lake. And if that individual sits down at that bench, I'm going to sit down at that bench and we'll talk. Um, she did, and I did. And I remember feeling deep resentment for anybody who came by and said anything to me. Um, because I wanted just this nice, lengthy conversation. After it was over, I... Instead of going home, I drove down to uh, uh, the ocean, came back up to Half Moon Bay and drove back here. Several hours of travel. The problem was, I had my life all set up the way I wanted it. I had uh, I'd been successful in several areas and I had been unsuccessful in several. Uh, successful, uh, I was a full professor at a local university. Uh, I published enough so I didn't have to worry about that anymore. I had two wonderful sons. On the other side, I had a marriage that had failed. And I couldn't control my eating and I couldn't stop gaining weight. So when I'd come into OA, there'd been a lot of promise for me. And the issue became, do I want to be involved with somebody else? And the answer was, no, I do not. Uh, well, what can I do about it? Because I would like to stay in OA. And I decided, all right, what I will do. I will kill off that feelings that I was feeling. And instead, I will uh, focus on uh, uh, the OA program and uh, I'll stay in. And that went well until my first opportunity to speak at a group. And it was a luncheon meeting. First time I'd ever spoken in OA. I had 
lost all his weight, but the opportunity to speak had not occurred. Well, the bottom line was that uh, I invited six friends to come and hear me speak, and uh, three or four of them did show up. I, I did speak, and I invited everybody to lunch afterward. Well, when the time came to go to lunch, I, uh, I said, well, how, everybody coming? And uh, everybody begged off except this one individual, the one who had walked out to the, to the bench. So we go to Belmont, next town down, to lunch. It is pouring down rain. We go in to have lunch. It's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, because remember, it was a luncheon meeting. And um, she turns to me and she says, uh, Robert, what would you do if you only had six months to live? I remember I am a cold-blooded, scientifically oriented individual. And my response, having careful consideration of at least half a second, was to say, well, I would ask you to marry me. She looked at me and she said one word. Oh. Um, we'll celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary uh, next spring. But the point is, I was going to give up OA because I was so sure that, that, that it was going to be a problem. And then I was so sure I could control it. And of course, I couldn't control it at all. So the consequence was that um, I got through the first major emergency. The weight kept dropping off. And I was a happy camper. Now, the story ought to have ended right there. And my presentation should be over. But something happened. Ours is a disease. Obsession and allergy. Did you notice, by the way, when our speaker talked about that last night, there were little balloons, O-A. Obsession, allergy, O-A. I'd never noticed that before. I do believe it's a disease, and I had it, and I was gaining weight again, and I couldn't understand why. I thought I was doing everything right. I was doing all the things we talked about in the program. Well, the consequence was that uh, I had to go back and look at what I was doing wrong. And what I finally concluded was I had never taken the second step adequately. I told you I went to church. I told you it was important to me. Uh, I believed in God, but... I had to ask myself some fundamental questions. Question one, is there really a God? My answer was, if there is not, there ought to be, and I will act as if there is, and everything else would flow from that. So the next step was, could God, with all of the busy things that God has to deal with, possibly be concerned with what I eat? And my answer was, God doesn't, God should, and I will act as if. And from that time on, the weight came off. So, that's why I'm twice a hundred pounder loser in this program, and couldn't be happier. Life is better. And I hope that you got something out of it worthwhile. So thank you for coming. Thanks, Robert. And now I'm going to introduce Lewis. Hey, everybody. My name's Lewis. I'm a compulsive overeater and addict. So uh, just to qualify, um, Sorry, I'm a shop teacher, so I'm used to yelling, uh, so I can be heard. Um, I, uh, I've been in OA uh, October 6, 1999 was my first meeting, and when I walked into that meeting, I was a 470-pound meth addict. Um, so I don't have any pictures from those days, and, and pictures were really powerful to me when I first came in and saw people, and I would look at the pictures and look at the person, look at the picture, look at the person, and it was hard to imagine that, that that person had been there, but it was it was evidence. It was physical evidence. So, like many of us, uh, it seemed like the one time I could move with any kind of speed at all was when there was a camera around. And so I don't have many pictures, but I have the pants that I wore in my first meeting. And these are those pants. Uh, they're size 72. And uh, this is how big I was. So... Back to the mic. Um, <clears throat> when I walked into that meeting, uh, I sat down for a newcomer's meeting, and uh, the person started talking uh, about the program of OA. 
um, and that person, um, you know, I don't think I've ever seen her before uh, or since then, and she started talking about uh, God and step two and three, and if I could have got up out of that couch that I was in, um, I, I would have left, but um, I couldn't. You know, I had 470 pounds. I had to have help to get up out of a couch, and she was the only other person there, so I had to sit there and listen. And I didn't, I didn't really like very much of what she said. But shortly after that, the meeting started, and uh, again, I heard the steps read, and I heard steps two and three, and step eleven about God. And I made up my mind right there that I couldn't work this program. You know, that this was not going to be of help to me. But uh, I had to sit through the end of the meeting, and so a couple of things happened. Number one, I heard people talk about the fact that they lost uh, over 100 pounds and kept it off for a number of years, which really amazed me. Uh, there was a man there that had weighed over 400 pounds, like me, and by that time he had lost about 180 pounds. So that definitely had my attention. And then I think the thing that really saved my life is after the meeting, uh, Two people in that room came up and uh, asked if they could give me a hug. And, um, you know, it had been so long since I had had that kind of intimate physical contact with another human being that uh, I really believe those two people saved my life. So um, I had gone to the only first OA meeting at um, the bequest of a therapist. Uh, more like directions. If you want to work for me, you're going to go to OA. And she was not she was not a 12-step therapist or anything. She just recognized my problem and saw that this had to be a solution. And so I recognized my my life was messed up, and this was uh, this was one maybe something that could help me. So I went. And uh, after the meeting, I would go back and I would tell her that this program couldn't work for me because, number one, I wasn't going to believe in God. I was a dogmatic atheist. And number two, uh, they wouldn't have let me in the club because I was a dogmatic atheist. And I was never going to be able to take steps two, three, and 11. And, you know, uh, a number of things happened um, over the next six to eight weeks. Uh, it was about six weeks. Uh, first of all, the man, that had, uh, one of the men that had spoken that had, had lost about 180 pounds, uh, he started calling me and we started talking. And, um, you know, I would go to these meetings and, and during the meetings I would feel better. Uh, after the meetings, I would feel even worse than I felt before I walked into those rooms because I could see that there was something there worth having, but when I went back home to my apartment and was alone in front of the television set with the food, it was just like I could never see how I could get there. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. There's one story maybe that describes the best the type of compulsive overeater I was, and, and this relates back to this, is, is uh, one night shortly before I came into program, I'd, I'd been standing in front of um, one of our local eating establishment, Quickway, which is about 10 levels below McDonald's. And um, I was uh, standing in line. It was a long line, and I was the next person to order. And I looked over to the right to me, and the person there was not ordering, he had opened up his jacket, and he had a gun, and he was robbing the place. So, as a compulsive overeater, I was facing a dilemma. You know, what do I do? Do I get out of line and leave and have to come back and sit through that line again? Or am I going to stand in line and risk, you know, something happening? And, you know, Everybody here in this room is a compulsive overeater, and I'm sure most of you would have done the same thing I did when you were in disease. You were not going to stand in that line again. You, you would, I just sat there, watched him rob the place, and stepped up next and did my order. <laughs> That's the kind of compulsive overeater I was. So, um, I, I had been uh, November 17th. I had just been to a meeting, that same Wednesday night meeting, and uh, I stopped at Quickway on the way home again, 
and I had my normal late night snack, which was three double cheeseburgers, three corn dogs, two large orders of fries, and a Diet Coke. <laughs> and um, the next morning, I got up and called this man and asked him if he would be my sponsor. And he said, yes, uh, this is what I do. I eat three meals a day. I don't eat between. I weigh and measure my food. I don't eat bread. I don't eat potatoes. I don't, you know, I don't eat starches. I don't eat sugar. Can you do that? And I said, yes. So as an atheist, um, I have to look back at that and say, what happened? You know, the person that, that, that went to sleep that night had uh, just increased quick ways profits by an immeasurable amount. And the person that woke up in the morning called and asked this person to be my sponsor and agreed to do this thing that just the night before seemed impossible. And, uh, of course, I wasn't going to credit to a higher power at that point. So uh, as I started working my program, uh, and it was limited pretty much to a plan of eating, and started working with a sponsor, um, I think I did my first step right there when I asked that person to be my sponsor. Because me, the first step is about six little words. I don't know, and please help me. And when I asked somebody to be my sponsor, that's what I did. I did the first step. Uh, I admitted I was powerless and I needed help and I didn't know. And uh, I, I worked this food plan and uh, I, I started losing weight rapidly because I was going probably from five or 6,000 calories a day down to somewhere around 1,800 to 2,000 calories a day. So um, probably four or five months later, uh, I probably lost close to 100 pounds already. And... Um, during the course of that time, I had had a number of uh, discussions. Uh, we'd done step one, and we started doing step three, and step two and three, and looking at uh, the literature. I started read the the, uh, the literature on the uh, the big book uh, on the we agnostics, and my original copy of the the big book, you know, was marked up. Hell no, fuck no, hell no, fuck no. There's no way I could look at that, and it, it just it did not make sense to me. You know, it's like. Uh, and, and still to this day, when we read the big book, uh, I love the big book because I think in a lot of ways it saved my life. It, it, it showed me what an addict was. But, the, you know, it was written by Christian men. And I could not wrap my head around that part of it. So, um, you know, uh, several months into the program, four or five months, I lost 100 pounds. And I was sitting there one night, and I got this idea all of a sudden that... Um, you know, my, ab my absence wasn't perfect. Uh, I was doing everything on my food plan. I don't think I'd wavered one iota off my food plan in that five months. But I got this idea that for some reason my two ounces of cheese a day was unclean. And so with perfect addict logic, I thought, I'm going to break my absence tonight. And tomorrow I'll be able to have perfect absence. You know, what better reason to eat? than to have perfect abstinence, you know? That's good addict logic. So I sat down. Uh, I was going to call a local pizza establishment, get two pizzas delivered, break my abstinence, and start clean the next day. I reached over to pick up the phone, uh, put my hand on it, and I could not pick up the phone and dial that number. It had nothing to do with me. Uh, I was not the person that did not make that phone call. Everything in me was about making that phone call. And that's when I realized for the first time that I had a higher power. Uh, it was like my higher power came up and slapped me right upside the head and said, I'm here. You know, I mean, the, the, uh, you know, the, the burning bush spiritual experience, it was 100% there. Uh, it, was, it was just so powerful. And then another miracle happened. Uh, it was 11.30 at night cold and raining, and I got up and I took a walk, you know, for exercise, not because I needed to walk to the store to buy something, but for exercise. And uh, that was the second miracle, two miracles in the spare of so 10 minutes, and I couldn't deny that they were miracles. So um, I started looking at some of this stuff, and I started experiencing other miracles in my life. Uh, I got my first job. I was working, uh, 10 years ago, I was working for the census going around door-to-door, -door, asking people, asking them all the questions they hadn't answered. Why didn't you turn in your thing? Do you have this many kids? How many people live here? Da-da-da. 
and I was walking from house to house, and uh, I tripped on a crack in the sidewalk, fell down, and I popped right back up. It's like, oh my God, that was so much fun, I want to do it again. Because when you're 470 pounds and you fall down, you don't pop right back up. Uh, I had fallen down in my apartment shortly before I came in a program, and I'd lean on a chair to stand back up, and I smashed the chair. So to fall down and pop right, it just seemed like a miracle. And I had other miracles in my life. I started being able to go to concerts and ball games, things that I loved. But I still wasn't ready to, to, you know, look at this idea of God. I still argued vehemently against it. I knew I had a higher power, but what, what about God? And so my question, every time I heard somebody speak in a meeting that said they were atheist or agnostic, what do you do about God? What's your higher power? What, what, you know, how do you do God? How do you do step three? How do you do step two? And, you know, uh, a, a number of people would answer, and none of them were satisfactory. So I was in a meeting one night, and I heard this woman get up and say, I'm New York Jewish communist atheist. I'm the last person in the world to believe in God, but I believe now I have a higher power. And that higher power is my grandson. Not my grandson, but the fact that he's there, that I want to be in his life. I want to see him grow up. I want to be able to get down on the ground and play with him. I want to be able to pick him up and hold him. And that's my power. And so I walked up to her and I said afterwards, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm an anarchist. I'm not a communist. And I'm a Catholic, not a Jew. What do I do? I said, I can't use your grandson. And she said, it's very simple. What food do you have the most problem with? And I said, ah, bacon cheeseburgers. And she said, do you want a bacon cheeseburger as your higher power? And all of a sudden I knew that all the time I'd been in the food, the food was my higher power. You know, what did I turn my life over to? I turned my life over to food. I turned my life over to thinking about eating, about not eating, about losing weight, about gaining weight, about feeling terrible about it, about hating myself. Everything was about food. If that's not the definition of a higher power or a power greater than yourself, and I couldn't stop eating, what is? And then I looked and I had other power greater than myself in my life. I had the IRS, you know. Um, if I don't pay my taxes, they're going to get their money anyway and more than the taxes. That's a power greater than myself because I can't stop them. Uh, the police, you know, power greater than me despite all my efforts, you know, Bad things happened when I didn't follow the police's directions. So I had power greater than myself in my life. And I knew that I did not want it to be the food. So what is it? Well, it's interesting. I still consider myself an atheist. Or maybe I'm better in the class of somebody who says, it doesn't really matter. I don't really care whether there's a God or not. Because I'm not going to do something because God says it's right. I'm not going to do. I'm not going to not do something because God says it's wrong. Uh, I don't believe in that kind of God, or if I believe in a God at all, you know. Um, to me, it just doesn't matter. What matters is the kind of person I am and the kind of life I lead. What I find myself in is becoming an atheist who believes strongly in prayer, and I use God in my prayer. Um, and maybe the two most important events in my life in the last 10 years, the death of my mother and the marriage to my wife, the third step prayer was a prominent part of her funeral and our wedding. Because I look at that prayer and I say, what does it ask? It asks God or something or a power greater than I myself to relieve me of the bondage of myself, you know, and that's, that's what I was. I was in bondage to myself. I was in bondage to my fears. I was in bondage to my uh, ego. I was, all those things had driven me to eat. And it doesn't matter what I'm asking to be released from that. So uh, that prayer is so powerful to me. And what else does it ask me to do? It asks me that, that if, if I'm relieved of that bondage, to go out and be able to use that to help others. You know, what can be wrong with that? There can't be anything wrong with it. It's kind of a secular humanist is the way I would describe myself. You know, that's what I want to do. I want to be of help and service to other people. And so that prayer carries everything I would want in a higher power. Um, 
The other thing I think about prayer, uh, and, and it, was, it was quite a while before I tried prayer, um, I would go to the meetings and I would try and say the serenity prayer without saying the God part. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I remember the first time I really prayed. Um, I was going to have surgery to correct a, um, I had a hernia because of the weight. Uh, I had something pop through my stomach. And uh, I was sitting there late at night. I was trying to go to sleep. And normally, something like that, I never would have gone to sleep. And I said, well, maybe I'll try and pray about it. So I said the serenity prayer, and boom, I was out. Next day before surgery, I said, wow, that worked so well. I'm going to do it again. And so I prayed, and I relaxed with the surgery. Um, And then I started doing things like when I had job applications, when I had to do other things, I started praying. And to me, prayer is two things, for me at least in my life. The times I prayed is mostly when I've been in fear and I needed help. And so prayer is an act of humility that when I, for me, praying is saying, reaffirming step one, I don't know, please help me. I don't care who helped me, somebody help me, that I don't know. The second thing that prayer usually involves with me is gratitude. I remember the first time I went to, uh, uh, I used to go to the big and men's tall stores. And I walked in there, and I tried on their smallest pair of pants. And it was too big. And they said, we don't have anything here to fit you. And I went back into the dressing room, and I got down on my knees. (coughs) And I thank God. You know, prayer is an act of gratitude. It wasn't God I was thanking. It was the program. It was the fellowship. It was the people that showed me how to live one day at a time. Um, I, you know, that's what I believe in, is this program. Um, I had to have faith to do. Step three to me is all about faith. And what is step three asking me to do besides the third step prayer? It's asking me, you know, if I'm going to do the will of God or if I'm going to do the will of my higher power, my, you know, my interpretation of that is to do steps four through nine. And I had to have faith to do that. To look at my life honestly and to talk about it with another person, I had to have faith. And that faith came from you guys, from everyone in this room that talked to me about their step four and how it transformed my life. Because I'd lost the weight, but my life was still going nowhere. You know, I could do a census job or I could do a part-time job working in the middle of the night from 2 to 7 in the morning because nobody else would do those jobs. But I couldn't have a job. I couldn't have a life. I couldn't do relationships, the big things that, that mean people are growing, without having some kind of faith. So I had to do my fourth and fifth step. And I needed that faith in a power greater than myself that I was going to be all right. And that came from the people in this room who told me that their lives changed when they did step four and five. And if I wanted my life to change, I had to do steps four through nine. So, um, you know, my life started changing radically. And today I have a life, you know, if you walked, if you would have told me ten years ago that I would have this life, I would have said, "I, I don't want that life. You know, first of all, I couldn't even imagine that life. And it's not something, you know, my life was about having enough food and having enough meth to make it to the next day or the next meal or the next line. It was not about having a home, about, you know, um, about so many of the things that having responsibilities and owning my life. Um, So I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, you know, one of the things that the, is in the big book, and they talk about in the spiritual experience, it's, the, it's at the end of the spiritual experience, um, they quote Herbert Spencer, and he says, There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. When I walked in these rooms, I was that man. I had contempt for everything to do with the word God. And now to me, God is a word. And that's it. I, I can say it. I can say it in prayers. I can ask for help. That doesn't mean I believe in God. Um, so, you know, when it comes down to it, um, this program saved my life. 
The people in these rooms saved my life. That's a power greater than myself because I could not save my life. And whether I believe it's in God or not is not important. You know, it happened. I cannot refute that. I've had miracle after miracle after miracle happen in these rooms. And I've seen it happen to other people. So, I quit the debating society. You know, if people say, are you still an atheist? I said, probably. You know, I probably am. But do I doubt that I have a power greater than myself? Not not one bit. You know, it's, it's, uh, I remember a discussion with my sponsor when I was going through the fourth step, and I started reading it to him, and he just shook his head and he said, Lewis, how can you not believe in God? The fact that you're sitting here as opposed to some, in a landfill somewhere, buried in a landfill, and you don't believe in God? Well, I still don't believe in God. But I do believe there's a power greater than myself that saved me in this program. And sometimes it's you guys, sometimes it's gratitude, sometimes it's humility, but I know it's there. You know, one of the things when people call and ask me to sponsor them, uh, and, and I work primarily with people that are that are uh, more, suffer from morbid obesity like myself because that's the people I feel most comfortable with and the people that I have the most to offer to. Um, and they talk about God and what they can't do God. And to me, the question is not whether you believe in God. It's whether you want to live or whether you want to die. And that's the question that every one of us has to ask ourselves. And if we want to live, then we'll find a way to deal with this question. Uh, if we're not sure or we don't know, then we have to figure that part out first. And then the other part will come with it. Thank you. Thanks, Lewis. Um, so the speakers will now draw questions from the Ask It basket, which I need to find. Anybody got the little blue basket next to them? Would anybody like to add more? Should I put around yet? Do you guys want to draw them or should I just read them out? Let's read them and then Okay. So, pretty straightforward. How would you describe your HP today? Robert again. Uh, I would call your attention to the fact that we have two really good pamphlets on OA uh, dealing with God. One is called, What If I Don't Believe in God? The other is, If God Spoke to OA. And I still see God as a rather personal God who cares about me and what happens to me and cares about humanity and other animals and uh, cares what occurs. Um, I'd like to share a little brief story that might show you an illustration of that. You remember I had uh, said to Dana, I'd ask you to marry me, and she said, oh, well, things did not flow freely from that because there were a lot of things to be discussed and considered and such. And I really thought there was a very good chance that she would say, shove off, Buster. Uh, And then one night, the most vivid experience I've ever had in my entire life. I think it was a dream, but I don't know for sure. Suddenly, a vision of God appeared to me, laughing at me. And the vision said, I told you, everything is going to be all right. And it was. And that's sort of where I am. So if I had to say, uh, you know, somebody put a gun to my head and said, define your, your higher power, uh, it would have to be uh, the 12 steps and 12 traditions in this fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. So how do you not get complacent? And what about self-will? Your turn. 
Um, I do get complacent. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, I'm an addict, uh, and so self-will is definitely a part of my disease. You know, when I walked into these rooms, my idea of good was whatever I thought I was doing. You know, that, that was good. <laughs> And uh, today it's much different. I have uh, things that tell me what's good. Do I hurt people? You know, there's a list of questions in the fourth step. There's character defects defined in six and seven. And um, the way I get stay out, try and stay out of the complacency and the self-will is always using those principles to look at my life. Um, those are the only guidelines that in this fellowship. You know. Um, Outside of that first time I came into OA, uh, probably the single greatest act of love I've had in this program is uh, about seven or eight months ago, uh, my wife and my sponsor came to me and said, hey, you're gaining weight. We're concerned you're going to die. So I think we don't do enough of that in this fellowship. We're not honest enough with each other because we're hurt, afraid of hurting each other's feelings. Because we would know how somebody said somebody said that to us, how we would feel. And my wife said, "You know, are you angry?" And I said, "You know, you did this incredibly brave thing and basically said you love me. How can I be angry with that?" So I think by this fellowship, being honest with me is how I stay out of complacency and stuff. Well. You know, it's a pleasure sharing a platform with Mike and Lewis. Uh, we aren't exactly alike, but we are identical in so many ways. Um, my own approach to that question is to say, I do the footwork, and I leave the results to God. But for those of you who weren't here when I started, I made a comment that uh, for the last for the last year, really, I've been on a 1,500-calorie diet uh, a day. And during that year... I've lost 30 pounds. I used to lose that in less than two months. But my answer to that has been, I do the footwork. I eat the calories. I eat what I'm supposed to eat. And whatever the result is, is okay with me. I turn it over to God. It really works well for me. So this is our last one. If anybody has any more. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is not our last one. Um, uh, so, the way God is thought of in OA is a very Christian interpretation. This is a problem to non-Christians. What do you think of this? Uh, I think if you're a Christian, that's fine. Uh, if you're not, then you find your own, what, whatever works for you. Again, the question for me is not about God. It's about whether you want to live or die. And you figure out what you need to live and go from there. Same answer. So, um, as an atheist, is it better to go to an OA meeting traditional or an agnostic AA meeting? Or an agnostic AA meeting? Um, if you want to hear somebody talk about food and how they, how they deal with food, you go to an OA meeting. Uh, you know, I think that's our, my solution is in an OA meeting. Again, I find my own higher power, and uh, I relate to people that are Christian, to people that are Jew, that, that, you know, I have friends in this program that have showed me so much that go to church maybe every day for all I know. Uh, but they have things to teach me, so it doesn't really matter what their religion is. Couldn't agree more. Sorry. <laughs> 
Um, how long do you think it would take to get it passed at world service uh, to change God to higher power in the steps and literature? I have two answers for that. About uh, six years ago, uh, our Sonoma County Intergroup decided to propose a change to the uh, tools. We wanted to increase the number of tools from eight to nine. We wanted to increase it by using the word uh, exercise. And we presented that to uh, World Service. I, I presented that to World Service. And we were turned down. Last month, we had uh, uh, a vote, and a ninth tool was approved, and one that incorporates exercise as part of that. We have two OA meetings in my county that are walking meetings, Wednesdays and Saturdays. If any of you would like to enjoy the fellowship of a walking meeting, please come up and join us. And uh, with regard to the other parts, I, I'm pretty comfortable the way things go. If we change it a little bit, I don't care. Point is, whatever you believe in God is fine with me. Uh, it's just what is. Um, I think it'll probably never be changed, and that's okay with me. I'm a I'm a mechanic by trade, and the cardinal rule of mechanics is if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, I know what I mean when when people say God, and it's not the God many people have. It may be the God some people have. It's a personal thing to everybody. In our literature, it says very explicitly, and in the A literature and all the 12-step literature, God as you understand God. Uh, that's the part I hear, and that's the part I believe in. And uh, uh, like I said, I quit the debating society, so... The word doesn't, it's not important. It's what's in your heart and what's the principles you live by that's important. As an atheist, will it work to have a Christian sponsor? Um, I don't know. I lost 260 pounds and did through the seventh step with two Christian sponsors. Uh, so it seemed to me like it worked. Um, you know, again, they understood. It's God as you understand God. And those were the principles they lived by, and those were the principles I lived by, and everything was fine. I'm totally confused. If you didn't hear a question, let me know. This is the last question. Um, how do you work steps six and seven and step 11? Mostly steps six and seven. I work them all the same. The truth is that uh, I've gone through them four times and I do a 10th step every night. And sometimes I'm then able to go in and apologize if uh, it's something that someone's close to me and I can, I can ex uh, express my apology. And if there's somebody who's not at home and I need to contact later, I can do that. I, the 12 steps all work. I like them all. Um, to me, six and seven, again, are uh, about being in touch with the principles of this program, the principles I want to live my life by, and talking to my sponsor, writing about those in the 10th step and my fellowship. My 11th step, uh, if I had to say I meditate, um, I, you know, I meditate in my garden. Uh, not meditating, but doing the gardening. And, of course, my garden, there's no roses in my garden. It's all beans and peas and cantaloupes and things you eat. But um, I'm a compulsive over you. What else am I going to work on? Um, so I haven't been to the other workshops. So should we close if we have no more questions? That's what we do? All right. So thank you very much, uh, Lewis and Robert, once again.
it is now time to close. Let's thank our speakers like we just did. And please stand and join hands as we close with the OA promise.